This podcast is about inclusion. Inclusion is immature. Part two of the DEI Agenda by Nick Casterling. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of men. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. If there was any part of the diversity, equity and inclusion, the DEI agenda that I could support, it would be inclusion. Unlike diversity and equity, which are logically flawed ideals that pit themselves directly against undeniable realities about life on planet Earth, inclusion is at least a charitable objective. Wanting everyone to feel included, working to actively value everyone, I mean, that's just nice. In fact, being inclusive is about actively creating community, which is something lacking in our over-urbanised modern world. Being inclusive is a good social instinct that we should all seek to develop. When you spot that person who is clearly outside their comfort zone, hovering at the edge of conversations, not sure what to do with themselves, include them, invite them in, be hospitable, be a friend maker, and do so in a way that is self-sacrificing. Open up your home, give up your time, be prepared to make yourself vulnerable in granting other people access to your friendship. And yet, the drop of truth always sweetens and disguises the lie. In the case of inclusion... The truth is that being inclusive is indeed a virtue. The lie in the DEI context is that inclusiveness, or you may call it inclusivity if you want to sound pretentious, is treated as a value rather than a virtue, which distorts the underlying moral. Traditional Christian virtues are about the means, not just the end. For instance, compare charity and theft. For someone who has a lot of wealth, being charitable is a virtue and results in them giving to the poor. For someone who is poor, being discontent is a vice which could result in them stealing from the rich. The outcome of both actions is the same. Wealth goes from the rich to the poor, but the morality of theft and charity is different. We experience this also in social settings. Inviting someone into your conversation and having someone inject themselves into your conversation uninvited both have the same outcome, yet the former is polite and the latter is rude. Why? The answer is in the language. It was your conversation. The old-fashioned virtue, charity, is a free will action. You are able to give only that which you first own. The concepts of ownership and authority are important constructs in our society that result in order rather than chaos. They are more important than inclusion. Hence, we can admire and practice inclusion the virtue without demanding inclusion the outcome. Inclusion has three problems. The first is that it is subjective. Whereas diversity in a workplace can be measured by looking at the human resource statistics, inclusion in many cases is not measured objectively. Instead, inclusion is measured by asking everyone whether they feel included. How you ask such a question can easily determine the outcome. Do you ever feel uncomfortable, misunderstood, like an outsider? The answer to this will almost always be yes due to the messiness of human life and interactions. If you ever feel uncomfortable, offended, ignored or neglected in a situation, there are two responses you can take. 
the first response is to blame everyone around you and identify what others can do to make it better. The second response is to identify what you can do to make it better. Now, sometimes the first of these is worthwhile. I've confronted someone before and explained how their actions made me feel. The problem with always blaming others, however, is that A, you may be simply incorrect. Let's face it, sometimes a situation will be awkward and uncomfortable no matter how many people try to make it otherwise. And some other situations ought to be uncomfortable, like being publicly reprimanded for doing wrong. And B, blaming others can be counterproductive. Ultimately, we are not responsible for the actions of others. I am responsible for my actions. You are responsible for yours. For you to respond to a situation by trying to fix me is pointless, even if my actions are, in fact, the problem. What I am describing here is a general feature of the modern progressive worldview. Rather than focus on an individual's responsibility to accommodate the world around them, they focus on the world's responsibility to accommodate individuals. The latter of these sounds nice, but it is beyond ability. Moving the world requires a force that we cannot exert, whereas moving ourselves requires a force that we can exert. It is also beyond rationality. Every individual is unique, and so there is no one version of the world that can simultaneously accommodate every individual to their satisfaction. It is also immoral. The highest expression of individual morality is love, which means to desire the best for others. It is not to expect the best from others. That is selfishness. The second problem with inclusion is that it becomes a pathology. The complaints of inclusion chase their prey relentlessly, but will never believe they've caught it. It is obvious to anyone who looks honestly that our society has a very different view of the roles that women can take than it had 40 years ago. We also have a very different view of race than we used to, back when we gladly maintained a white Australia policy or when the USA had segregation laws. Certainly, there are still some individuals who are sexist and racist, and some pockets in which a particular expression of prejudice will thrive. But systemically, we are not. Women and people of all races work together in all workplaces, are admitted to all public venues, have held almost all public offices in the land. And yet, while some are happy to celebrate that victory... The latest wave of feminists and activists instead invent new categories of discrimination to explain situations in which these minorities don't feel included. Microaggressions, for example, like asking someone where they are from or speaking more slowly to someone who has an accent or offering a different greeting to a woman compared to a man. Am I meant to shake your hand, kiss your cheek? I don't know, it's confusing. None of these are aggressions because they are not aggressive. They are normal human interactions between people who have only just met. They reflect a lack of understanding, but not a lack of support. A lack of knowledge, but not an unwillingness to learn. They are part of a process, not a product. If you can't handle a world where this sort of stuff happens, then move to an island and start getting acquainted with a soccer ball named Wilson. This problem with inclusion, like the first point, reflects a broader cultural trend. It is the trend of taking the postmodern relativism approach to interactions. Relativism gives the right of interpretation to a person receiving a message rather than the person transmitting it. As a result, a comment may be interpreted as hostile that was intended to be friendly. An action may be interpreted as a sexual advance that was meant to be platonic. Inclusion is subjective. It doesn't care what was meant, but only what was perceived, because the message received is what determines the feeling of inclusion. 
Yet some people are chronically discontent complainers and nothing would satisfy them because the world simply doesn't work the way they want it to. No amount of effort towards inclusion would satisfy such people. Should we allow those people the right to define what the rest of the world ought to be doing to make them feel included? Perhaps it is cynical of me, but it seems that this aspect of inclusion is even strategic because inclusion provides something for people to complain about even after diversity has already been achieved. Yes, okay, you have women on your board of directors, but are they included? Do you listen to them? You're still not doing enough. There's nothing more useful for an activist than a problem that isn't solved until they say it is. Hi, this is Dave Pellow, editor and founder of The Good Source, Big thanks to the Good Source supporters, people who put their hand in their pocket for five, ten, or twenty dollars a month, some even a little bit more. There are no paywalls, no subscription fees, all of our content is completely free, and it is brought to you by Good Source supporters. If you would like to become a supporter, simply head to the website goodsource.news and click on the support button where you'll be able to sign up for a monthly or one off donation. Thank you very much, and now back to the rest of your podcast. The third problem with inclusion is that it has a cost, and where inclusion is not affordable, it is not feasible. The direct costs of inclusion are prominent when accommodating people who face significant physical barriers to inclusion, such as people with disabilities. Accommodating disabilities is very expensive. Ramps cost more than stairs because they take up more room. Elevators cost more again. Someone who hasn't got arms may need a voice-to-text system in order to type and also a more private workspace to be less disruptive to colleagues. People with mental disabilities may take longer to teach or require more supervision and may be less productive. All of these are costs. If the work completed cannot cover those costs, then who will pay them? Now, I think it is wonderful that we have many systems to support people with disabilities and that provide many ways for them to become involved in many activities. These are, however, a luxury of the modern era. If our society was not insanely wealthy due to the technological revolution, then we could not afford these things. They are privileges, but not rights. Put simply, someone with a disability cannot claim a right to be included in all the same facets of society that able-bodied people can because they have no right to demand that somebody pays the cost of their inclusion. Perhaps you think that this is a problem of the past and that these days we have enough money to include everyone in everything, but that is not true. Sure, public spaces, offices and most city centre buildings can have wheelchair access, for instance. But could someone in a wheelchair work out the back of McDonald's? No, it's too cramped. Could they work in the average factory, which usually have mezzanine floors overlooking the workspace? Could they work in processing facilities, which use ladders and stairs for access everywhere? There are many types of participation that remain simply infeasible. Inclusion can have other indirect costs also. For instance, I read about a scouts camp in which a group of children did the sorts of things that scouts do. Zip lining, camping, eating grubs, finding unconventional sources of water. I don't know, I wasn't a scout. On this particular trip, a non-verbal autistic child attended. The child would yell disruptively and thrash about. He required full-time direct attention. It was a slower process to involve him in every activity and the other kids were, quite rationally, a bit scared of him. Having him along ruined the trip for everyone. And what did it accomplish? Attending scouts isn't a right, it's a privilege. 
Someone in unfortunate circumstances may be deprived of that privilege for practical reasons. There is nothing wrong with that. We can't all be included in everything. A more controversial topic is when mentally disabled adults are put on the pill or given hysterectomies to prevent them having children. Who has the right to deprive them of being included in that facet of life, advocates ask. And yet the consequences of that facet of life are childbirth, a distressing process that a young mentally handicapped woman might not be able to process, and then a child who the parents are not able to look after and who has a high probability of being disabled. So we can flip the question, why would someone who cannot raise a child have a right to bear one? Who will pay the cost of their inclusion? Moving away from the topic of disabilities, an example I heard from a seminar on gender inclusion was mining. Mining is a traditionally male industry that, before improvement in machinery, involved backbreaking work. In the past, mines often had only one changing room or toilet, or perhaps even none, because there were no women around. This turned a statistical lack of gender diversity into a certain lack of gender diversity because no women were accommodated by the available facilities. Now, you could call this structural discrimination, a lack of inclusion and unfair, yet who can afford to build an additional toilet block or changing room for 1% of their staff? Would the productivity gained by that 1% cover the cost? And if not, why would you pay that cost unnecessarily? the mining companies were instead quite content with a male-only contingent of miners. So inclusion generally turns minorities into a disproportionate resource sink, and that reduces overall efficiency of our economy. We are able to afford this to an impressive extent in our modern affluent society, but a few centuries ago it would have been unthinkable, and even today it is limited. It may be apparent by now that inclusion, like diversity, is really all about equity. When I was at school, I was told not to compare myself to the people around me. Don't worry about what he's doing, you just worry about your own work. Even in a competition, we were told that we should just strive for a PB, a personal best. Don't compete against everyone else, only ever compete against yesterday you. Though we were encouraged not to compare ourselves to others when it came to skills and accomplishments, increasingly we are told that we should compare ourselves to others when it comes to everything else. Opportunities, income, quality of life. We use the word deserve. Everyone deserves an equal chance in life. The historical Western perspective actually took the opposite stance on both of these issues. Comparing your skills and accomplishments to the people around you was not discouraged. We must measure ourselves against one another because we participate in a common marketplace. If you're no good at mathematics compared to the rest of your class, it doesn't really matter whether you are better than you were yesterday or not. You're still not going to become a mathematician because no one will buy your services. We measure ourselves against others to discover what we have to offer the world. People who object strongly to comparisons do so because competitions have losers and being a loser is difficult. But that's immature. Mature competitors can identify and celebrate those who are the best at something without taking a blow to their own ego. They can understand that there is a dignity and value to everyone from the greatest to the least and that recognising and honouring a winner does not dehumanise the loser. Avoiding comparison is an immature response to inequality. A mature response has nothing to fear from competition because all a competition does is to reveal truth. Some people are more skilled than others. 
It's a fact, and it's a fact that may be relevant. Denying this is just juvenile. When we measure ourselves as unequal, which we inevitably will, the traditional Western response was then acceptance. We had an expression, your lot in life, and a saying, life's not fair. Some people are born in poor families and some in wealthy. Some are born diseased and some are born healthy. Some people went to war and died in the first minute. Others survived until the end. My parents went to university in the 70s and got it for free. I went to university in the 2000s and had to pay for some of it. Life isn't fair. Everyone will have some options closed to them by virtue of who they are and when and where they live. Short people can't play basketball. Asthmatics can't run marathons. Eventually, all of us retire because old people can't do lots of things. The right response is not to complain about what you don't have. It's to identify how you should best serve with what you do have. The right response is not to demand everyone else change, but to teach yourself to be more resilient. Remember that kid who had a tantrum whenever he couldn't have the same things that the other kids got? Of course you do. You were that kid. Well, that's what valuing inclusion looks like. Inclusion means telling that kid that he's right, instead of telling him to grow up. Yes, it is virtuous to be inclusive and understanding of others to the maximum extent that you are able with the things that you have. But it is simply immature to demand that of everyone else. So if that's you being all demanding and whiny, here's some tough love. Grow up. Take responsibility for your own feelings and substitute complaining with coping. Thankfulness is a verb. Start doing it. Assume the best of everyone and show a bit of grace. You're not the only one with difficulties in your life. Are yours worse? Maybe. Is that unfair? Sure is. Life's not fair. Deal with it. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but the kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynic, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.